Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, there are a lot of podcasts that do not ask you for money. This is not one of those podcasts. But then again, I'm not trying to sell you like bodybuilding supplements. I don't have a mass audience of people listening to me talk with my best friend about our sex lives or annotate old sitcoms that we were in. This is a Canadian show. This is how we're going to do it. A combination of advertising and listener support. You can get ad-free versions of this podcast when you go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Or if you're listening on a smartphone, just click the link in your show notes And it's five bucks a month for ad-free Canada land. Please do it. It's like night and day compared to Canada in the U.S., I'm proud to be Canadian. I'm proud to be the Premier of Ontario. Uh, and I know Canadians just won't tolerate it. Again, uh, good luck to them. And uh, hopefully they can straighten out their problems. And thank God, thank God that uh, we're different than the United States. And we don't have the systemic, deep roots they, they have had for years. The difference between the US and Canada, we get along. It's, believe me, it's night and day. I'm proud to be Canadian. So that's what the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, had to say in the wake of protests against racism and police brutality that spread from the United States into Canada after the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. Lucky for us, we don't have the deep roots of systemic racism baked into our systems, our institutions, our history. That's an American thing, and good luck to them with that. Sucks to be them, I guess. Look, it's easy to take shots at the ignorance of Doug Ford. And I do believe that he was honestly ignorant. But how many Canadians could tell you that the militarization of police is not some recent phenomenon here in Canada, but something foundational to Canadian policing? The RCMP began six years after Confederation, when John A. Macdonald established the paramilitary Northwest Mounted Rifles to clear the prairies for settlement and to protect the Hudson's Bay Company from, quote, Indian massacres. 
McDonald changed the name from rifles to police in order to hide the military nature of the Mounties from the Americans. He didn't want them to know that he was building up troops along the border. As for the racism part, the long and violent history of the RCMP's relationship with indigenous people is well documented. From helping Ottawa secure treaties to spreading firewater alcohol across the plains to forcibly breaking up families, the Mounties were and remain the point of physical contact between the federal government and hundreds of indigenous communities. They certainly are a system, and it is just not really a matter of debate that they are a foundationally racist one. But again, I do think Doug Ford was being honest when he seemed to not know any of that. I mean, even the current commissioner of the RCMP doesn't seem to know that. Here is how Commissioner Brenda Lucky answered when asked if her own organization is systemically racist. I, I can't say for sure. You know, we, we put in policies and procedures so to, to, to make sure we don't have systemic racism. And I think for many of our members are doing great work every single day. There are members, of course, who are not following our core values. She can't say for sure. Ignoring Indigenous people is easy in Canada. That's what reserves are for. That's what Mounties are for. But some evidence simply won't be ignored. When the timing's right. In recent weeks, as Canadian media asked that same question we always ask when big news breaks in the U.S., what's the Canadian angle? The internet provided. First, a video of an RCMP truck in Nunavut purposely accelerating into an intoxicated Inuk man. Then, RCMP dash cam footage from Fort McMurray of a Mountie suddenly jump tackling a man, punching him in the head and putting him into a chokehold. That man was Athabasca Chippewan Chief Alan Adam. Something clicked, and I think it was the videos that did it. Not the killings, mind you, and there have been killings, but we don't have viral videos of those. The videos we do have fit into a story that the media was already telling about American police and protests. They provided that Canadian angle. Systemic racism is an issue right across the country in all our institutions, including in all our police forces, including in the RCMP. That's what systemic racism is. Both Doug Ford and Brenda Lucky got the memo. They've walked back their earlier statements. Maybe systemic racism does, in fact, exist in Canada. Maybe it has deep historical roots here, too. So that's where the rhetorical ball has bounced. Everybody has adopted the language. They've accepted it. But what does it mean? What has it always meant? What do the police mean to you if you happen to be an Indigenous person? Today, I'm going to welcome two new contributors to Canada Land. Carl Dockstatter, Oneida of the Thames, Bear Clan, lives in Niagara Falls. Sean Vanderclis, Anishinaabe of Curve Lake First Nation, Turtle Clan, lives in St. Catharines. Together, they co-host the radio show and podcast, One Dish, One Mic, which you should go subscribe to. And they are each recipients of the 2020 CJF-CBC Indigenous Journalism Fellowship. Wait for them. This episode is brought to you by Maya Hoke, Gabe Klassen, Chris Oliveros, Lindsay Short, Jen Neelands, Blair McKenzie, Brianna Major, and Lee Blanding. My name is Lee Blanding. I'm a historian and I teach history and Canadian studies courses at the college level in Vancouver. Um, I started listening to Canada Land several years ago, and I took full advantage of the fact that it's free. Um, but now I'm a supporter because I really like that Canada Land does really good media criticism. So I like that I get to see how the soup gets made. I also really have liked that, they, that Canada Land has branched out into straight-ahead journalism. Um, I really like that you took on the Irving family, which nobody seems willing to do. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, 
uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Canadians know the name George Floyd. They know the name Ahmaud Arbery. Canadians know Trayvon Martin. There are some other names that I don't think are as widely known in Canada, even though they are names of people who lived here. Can you share with me some of these names? People need to know what happened to, to Dale Culver. People need to know what happened to Chantel Moore. People need to know the name Deborah Lee Christian and Oneida. They should know the name Aisha Hudson, Jason Collins, Stuart Kevin Andrews, Abraham Nadanin, Regis Korchinski Paquette, Everett Patrick, and Rodney Levi. These are all people that had families. These are all people that are survived by loved ones. And these are all people who on their last day, the last person they saw were police officers. Uh, these are people who were killed by police officers or in, in incidents and altercations with police officers. Is that accurate? Yeah, every single one of those cases involved police interaction. As to Indigenous men, what does policing mean to you? Sean? It's it's a system of control. And how I, how I evaluate uh, these systems in my life is, is I, I based on what I have to tell my children. When we think about the police... And we think about the RCMP, we don't see them as a good guy. And this, this, this is not me trying to politicize this or polarize this. We don't. It, like Fundamentally, cowboys and Indians, RCMP was con- designed to control indigenous people. So when I talk to my kids, I have to tell them how to behave. And, and unfortunately, that's a lived reality that I have and my children have. Carl, is that consistent with your experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's going all the way back to London and what happened when when I was 15, when Dudley George was killed through really no fault of the Indigenous people and and definitely not through through Dudley George's fault was that at our local Friendship Centre, I'm a proud Friendship Centre baby, so they called the youth into the Namorin Friendship Centre and everybody's emotions were high. Everybody was hyper aware of what had happened again. London has a heavy police presence and what they decided to do was to instruct us as Indigenous youth on how to conduct ourselves safely if we were pulled over by the police. And it never hit me at the time that that's fundamentally backwards. They were telling the Indigenous youth how to react to the police, not telling the police how to handle Indigenous youth, not telling them how to be sensitive to the colonial history or to the fact that that we were going to be sensitive because because a member of, of their 
parallel forces, the OPP had had killed an indigenous person. It was so fundamentally completely backwards. I'll I'll never forget that. I it really frustrates me to no end, and it just feels brutally unfair that this 15 year old kid first has to read one day in the headlines that the police killed an indigenous man, and then the very next day. That, that I'm taken in and said that you have to watch yourself around these people because if you don't do everything perfectly, if you're not the kind of person that they want you to be, then you're going to be the one that's in trouble. It's, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, living in an urban community um, that is fundamentally older in age, fundamentally whiter in color, you stick out as an indigenous person. You do. And because you stick out, you you have to face and have to have these hard conversations, and you have to deal with with the ra- the blatant racism that does exist. Um, I, I like to be completely honest, to be open. I, I had a run in with the law, and the the run in that happened was that my friends got into a fight. Two non Indigenous people, two visibly white people, got into a fight, and we saw somebody get involved. I went to break it up. Turns out it's the cops. What happens is I and my cousin, who are both visibly indigenous, are arrested and charged with assaulting a peace officer. And the non-indigenous people, the people who are clearly let go scot-free. So a fight happens. We try to break it up. We get arrested and we're charged with assaulting a police officer. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at defending myself. I'm pretty good at talking my way out of situations. Um, I'm pretty comfortable in uncomfortable situations. But my experience with the justice system, my experience with the police, is that I do not belong at all. And it fundamentally breaks you down. It really does. Because you know what I would like to do is I'd like to wake up the next day and I'd like for my son, for myself, to think that, you know what, the, the cops are good people that the police force is good people, that I want to believe in this utopian society that it, it's just because I'm Indigenous, we can't. Because of the lived experiences that I have, that the lived experiences of my friends and, and everybody else within our community, it, it prevents us from, from having that same experience. It's difficult because I don't know what age I realize that other people don't see the police the same way that I see police. I, I never saw them as the good guys. One of my formative experiences was was Oka. So at 10 years of age, when you're just sort of figuring out life, what I see is splash across the headlines is that the Sileta Quebec are going in and they're invading sovereign territory in, in Katnuage. And so for me, that was formative. And, and I really took that to heart, seeing seeing the police go in, seeing the military go in afterwards, seeing all of the conflict and, and the violence and, and the mixed messaging. And then a few years after having Ipperwash and then having living living in London with a heavy police presence, living here in Niagara with a heavy police presence, I, I've never seen police as the good guys. And I didn't realize until until recently in life that, that a lot of people see things differently. But I just I don't have positive experiences to speak to like a lot of other people. Can you remind everybody what happened at Ipperwash? In 1995, the Kettle and Stony Point First Nations were trying to take back territory that was supposed to be temporarily borrowed by the Canadian government when OPP forces moved in. Dudley George had a a stick in his hand but was completely unarmed. Two police officers engaged with Dudley George and he he was shot in the process. This was shortly after the Premier of Ontario had said, quote, get those fucking Indians out of the park, end quote, to senior leaderships, including OPP officials. And that loss of life just sent a ripple all across Canada and, and definitely through London, where I live, which is only an hour away and has a heavy population of people from Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. Well, the, that quote from Mike Harris, uh, though there's lots of reason to believe he did say it, there are eight people who swear he didn't say it. What we do know for sure, because video later emerged, is how the police present at Ipperwash, uh, some of whom were, were undercover uh, as protesters. We do know what they had to say about the protesters and some of the their sentiments because there's video evidence. There's still a lot of press down there? No, there's no one down there. This could be fat fuck Indian. Camera's rolling. Yeah. We had this plan, you know, we thought if we could get five or six cases of uh, Lapatch 50, we could bait them. Then we could have this big net at a pit. <laughs> Creative thinking. Works in the south with watermelon. They sound like some bad cops. I think a lot of people are realizing, perhaps for the first time, that that's what policing is. 
for black people, for indigenous people. But uh, as you say, this is old news for you. And that's what's tough because a lot of people will say they're they're bad apples or they're you know maybe that's an outstanding or you know hey Jesse you guys pulled up the the worst possible clip but when I think back to my childhood and when I think up until now the only interactions I've had with with police have been have been fundamentally negative so it's it's hard for me to believe this narrative that it's only a few bad apples when that's that's all I've seen from police is when I'm alone at nighttime they're looking at me when I was a kid walking through the streets of London knowing that that cop has has an eye on me and and then seeing in the headlines that, that Dudley George lost his life because it just wasn't valuable at that time in that place to those police officers for them to take the right precautions so that he could live. It's it's devastating and it's formed my entire view of the police and it's not positive. You know, we could talk and, and, and we should talk and we should return to this idea of why it is that the Canadian population can somehow understand these issues as they occur to black people in America in a way that feels a bit more immediate or real or uh, something to take to the, to the streets about uh, more so than when it's happening to indigenous people right here. But let's reserve that for a moment because that is how this is back in the conversation. And it was in, in, in the wake of the protests around the world that we then started to talk about Regis and that we then started to talk about Chantel Moore and that we then saw video footage and I think that just in terms of people's like how they view the news, watching horrible uh, video clips of black people being killed by the police and then watching the video of uh, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation Chief Alan Adam in Fort McMurray just being horrifically assaulted by the RCMP and making that connection. That connection has been made. And if anything is possible ever, it would be now. But I wonder if that's just my perspective on this is that even true like has the violence increased or did we just start paying attention it seems to me that i've been watching my entire life that we're noticed more and that we're seen more and because we spend more time with the police that that the violence has has always been there one of the issues here is actually that the police don't release these statistics like there's not race-based data is is not collected and it, it's not processed the same way that it's been processed in the United States in terms of information. So when we ask ourselves how many Indigenous people have died during police interactions over a period of time, it's been left exclusively to the media to collect that information. The information has shown, though, that the proportion of Indigenous people and Black people that die after police interactions is it, it is higher. The scrutiny that we have right now, though, I, I think that, yeah, I think everything's under the microscope, but we're just seeing a scrape of a pretty average block of time, unfortunately. I mean, I, I guess this is the moment to seize if you're trying to push things forward on this. And I know that's how you went into this interview that you two conducted for us. Who is Senator Lillian Dick? Senator Lillian Dick is a member of the Cree Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan and a first generation Chinese Canadian. She's the first female First Nation senator and a Canadian born senator of Chinese descent. When Senator Dick called for the commissioner who was hired on the basis that she was going to fix the RCMP. When Senator Dick said that she needed to be fired, Sean and I had to talk to her. We had to know what kind of a place she was coming from and if she was upset as we were about all of the things that are happening between police and members of our community right now. The goal of the art interview with Senator Lillian Dick was to see where her views are. Do they reflect the grassroots movement? Do they reflect what is happening in society right now? And, uh, we had the opportunity to interview her. We had the opportunity to ask her these tough questions. And I would encourage you to listen to this interview. So we're going into multiple gender. I don't even know how far back policing has been broken for. for. Yes. Is it, can the institution of police itself be fixed? Well, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a good answer. Honestly, we have to start somewhere because I, I certainly do think we do need some kind of police force for protection. But the one that we have now clearly has gone, I think, too far in terms of the way it handles Indigenous people and racialized Canadians. I mean, we saw the video of uh, Chief Adam. That really, I think, uh, was a landmark video. It just, I mean, it was, uh, frankly, I couldn't watch the whole thing because it's too traumatic. I, I can't watch that kind of violence. Uh, but it de definitely showed that there are flaws. And then for the RCMP then initially to come back, their initial position was, well, it meets the, uh, the standards, the level of force that the police can apply. Well, then the general public, like people like myself say, 
Well, if that's the kind of force they can apply, something's seriously wrong. They must be applying this force to everybody they encounter. Nobody wants to be treated that way. And certainly in Chief Adams' case, I think likely applied it at a greater strength than they would have for another person who was not an Indigenous person. And we have, we worry. You know, women worry because we are underprotected and over-victimized. Men worry the same way. And, you know, it's really sad that Indigenous men, if you look at the statistics, they've been collecting statistics on Indigenous identity and homicides for the last four or five years. And Indigenous men are more likely to be killed across Canada at five times the rate. Five or, yes, five times the rate. And for women, it's seven times the rate. We know that in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba, when with police encounters, it's more likely to be an Indigenous man, that's, an Indigenous person that's killed. So, I mean, this is just unacceptable. This is supposed to be Canada, which we see as this uh, land of diversity and everybody's equal. We all get the, you know, the same kind of treat. Nobody's discriminated against. It's, it's been five years since we had the Truth and Reconciliation Report. It's been a year since the National Inquiry report on missing and murdered Indigenous women came out. We've had report after report after report stating there's problems. So something has to start happening now. So let's say that Justin Trudeau listens to your recommendation. He makes a uh, recommendation to the minister and they then remove commissioner from her position. Is, is, that, is that the goal? Is that the starting point? Is that the, the uh, where, where do you see this going after that? I would be surprised if they remove her, even though I think they should. We need a leader at the top of the RCMP who is capable of shifting it from the positions that it is in now. If you look at Saskatoon, where we had the Starlight uh, uh, tours way back, and where Indigenous men were being dropped outside of the city and left to freeze to death. It took a very strong new police of chief to come and essentially make the police change. And that's the kind of leadership I think we need at the federal level. We need someone who has the abilities to make that huge change and waffling about whether or not there is systemic racism not saying you don't know what it is and you don't know for sure if there are racists in the police force and maybe it's just unconscious bias is not the kind of position that's going to lead to the big changes that we need to see in the RCMP. The, the word on the street right now is defund though. They're, they're talking about defund the police. They're talking about abolishing the police. They're, they're talking about an institution that inside and, and out has killed more people over the COVID-19 yeah. crisis than COVID-19 itself. So, I mean, is, is there time left for reform or is it time to talk about reallocating resources and, and maybe even looking to a future where we don't need police in our communities anymore? Well, certainly I think the funding issue can, can be looked at and people are saying, and I agree, that funding should go towards mental health services, social services, and in many of the instances, certainly uh, the last two cases in New Brunswick, where there were Indigenous people under mental health distress, if they had had different resources available, they could have they could have sent a, a mental health worker, a social worker, and maybe a female police officer as backup. Because I've actually seen that kind of action uh, in 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 my own experience. I've seen it happen where you call in a mobile crisis unit with with a team. And the police officers there, not as the first person, but is there to, in case the situation gets out of hand. And so that way you get a, a much, uh, I think, greater likelihood that the person's actually going to get help and taken to the hospital if necessary, but certainly not, uh, not attacked, uh, not, not physically beaten or uh, at worst uh, shot and killed. So, but I mean, I grew up in a, in a community where the police weren't our friends. I mean, I grew up in Julian Fantino's London, and it was right around the time that Dudley George died in Ipperwash, and mm -hmm. there were a lot of other things that were happening. All of the Indigenous kids in my community, we, we did not trust the police. Now, here I am 20 plus years later, and, and nothing's changed. Do you think that the, the broken trust between Indigenous people and the police force can, can ever be restored? You know, it can only be restored once the relationship changes and you see a demonstration of goodwill on their part. 
again, speaking to my experience here in Saskatoon, I think that that relationship has improved a lot and it took a lot of, lot of hard effort uh, on, on the behalf of the city chief of police and on the uh, members. So they had a, a special unit that uh, they had specific officers who, who were meeting with uh, members of the community. They have an advisory committee. They speak to the elders. There's much more community involvement still there, it's not perfect. Still, there's an increase, you know, increased carding of Indigenous people. Not everything is fixed, but it's getting better. It's not going to happen overnight, but we have to start now with something, you know, something meaningful, something to, you know, say we are going to go on this path, and and we can't turn back now. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. So, guys, listening to that, it's the rhetoric was. I mean, I might, I might have been talking to either of you in terms of how appalled the senator seemed and uh, how forcefully she argued for a need for change. She's on board for a reallocation of funds. She's on board to even have a replacement uh, RCMP commissioner. But when it comes down to the idea that you presented to her that maybe these communities don't need police officers and there's another way of handling incidents – what did you sense was her kind of policy position on on that? Because that is increasingly an idea that is that is being uh, debated and discussed. As soon as I hung up the phone with Senator Dick, that that was my first thought too. Was was like, wow, was she powerful talking talking about what she had seen and what she was hearing from community and and demanding change? Like like, and she has she has been a tireless advocate for our people and has has demanded that things be better but then yeah when it came to policy i was like it it just seems like there's an appetite for a paradigm shift i want to respect the fact that the senator's looking at this from the long game and she's been at this a lot longer than than i'm even than i've even been looking at this issue but but did i really hear a call for substantive change like the kind of fundamental change that could really change the nature of the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people and if i'm being perfectly honest i just didn't hear it in in her answers she she still i think fundamentally believes in the system and i think that that a lot of the people i talk to are fundamentally skeptical of the system Sean what did you think I think uh, one of the things that we need to consider is that Indigenous people have never been part of the system. And I, like, I, I really appreciate the Senator's point of view that we need to, to consider change. But like replacing the commissioner with another commissioner, okay, that, that makes sense, I guess. But is that really dealing with the issue at hand? Like, are, are we just putting a Band-Aid on a disease? Because in my opinion, that, that's fundamentally what it is is that Indigenous people do not belong within the system that is Canada. We don't belong in, in, in democracy. We do not belong within policing. We don't belong in health. And you, you can replace all the commissions you want. Again, I don't think that that is going to have a fundamental change. From my point of view, I think she may have been uh, a little off, out of touch with our, with our local community and the people that are on the ground who are dealing with this. I mean, by definition, a, a senator, a member of our government tries to work within the system. And we know that the only reason why there's an appetite for this paradigm shift is because of pressure that is occurring from outside of the system, that the system is, is being inflicted upon the system. You know, placing this conversation in the wider context, everyone's talking about, you know, there's sort of this range of like, OK, defund the police. It's got a lot of support right now. They get a lot of money and crime's been going down. What's up with that? And then we see these videos and you say, uh, certainly somebody else could be going in for mental health checks. And just before we sat down to talk today, another video emerged of uh, an Asian woman being just horribly beaten as she was uh, a, well a wellness check from an RCMP officer. And she's being dragged through a hallway and a foot on her head. So there's a lot of mainstream support with that kind of video evidence for like, wow, like these 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 cops with their guns. Everything looks like a nail to a hammer. Somebody else should be going in. And then you get to this point where different communities are talking about abolishing policing. And that's that's the radical idea that the mainstream, I think, is still, you know, not ready for. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I, I still ask those questions of like, well, yeah, but what do you do when someone breaks into your house? And what, what about when you need policing? Uh, without getting into my perspective on this, I, 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 I want to talk about the RCMP, not policing writ large, but the RCMP and its history when it comes to Indigenous people. 
how far back is Canada ready to go? How far back do you two go when you are looking at the RCMP and asking this crucial question, can it be somehow evolved and adapted to meet the needs of these communities? Or is the RCMP something that is so associated with everything that we're trying to move past that we, we need to think of a future beyond the RCMP? We need to abolish the RCMP. Regular listeners to One Dish, One Mike know that Sean and I are not big fans of Sir John A. Macdonald, but the roots of the RCMP actually go all the way back to him. So I I was uh, studying up for this interview, and it turns out that Sir John A. Macdonald was, was looking for an idea about how to expand Canada in a westward direction, and they were uh, just, just purchasing the territory from the Hudson's Bay Company so that they could they could expand the territory of Canada. And John A. Macdonald, a uh, historian, actually pointed out, looked at the uh, Royal Irish uh, Constabulary, a paramilitary police force that the British created to keep the Irish under control. And so he modeled the Northwestern police force after after that paramilitary force and that that was a tool that, that was used to, to fight the Métis, to oppress Indigenous people, to play an active role in removing children from their homes and taking them to residential school. The RCMP often accompanied children being scooped from their homes for the 60s scoop. And then fast forwarding to today, all of the things. And unfortunately, there's so much stuff that you can rip from the headlines about how the RCMP are still treating Indigenous people. So when people talk about the the roots and the trunk of the police force, I mean, it, it was founded on racist ideologies and it, can it be salvaged? I'm not sure, but but I think people should really study up on the history. And it's been bad from day one for Indigenous people. I mean, we have heard of the game Cowboys and Indians, and, and that is literally what's happening. We have the Cowboys who are the good guys. We have the Indians who are the bad guys. And, and fundamentally, that is the relationship we have. This isn't a, a John Wayne movie. This isn't the, the 1950s of, of the portrayal of the uh, Wild West. The, these, the RCMP does what we what is what it has been designed to do and that, that is to protect the interests of the citizens of canada and and again control the indigenous people of this country what would it look like a, a canada post rcmp we're talking about communities that are troubled where uh people are vulnerable where there is violence we're talking about communities that need uh, some kind of help at times, but we're also talking about like a lot of places that don't even have a provincial police force where the point of contact with the federal government of Canada, with the crown, is your local RCMP officer who has, I think, power of life or death over you. So I think that the RCMP and policing on reserves fundamentally, uh, again, is another system of control. Like, let's talk about properly funding the reserves systems that, that exist. Let's talk about providing funding to healthcare, to education, to, to nutrition, right? COVID-19 has, has come into Canada. And should this hit a reserve, this is going to be absolutely devastating to our people. It's, it's good that the government has given us money to, to, to deal with this. But if we don't have the infrastructure to accomplish or to, to execute the plans that they put in place, then what good does it actually, actually serve? So when we talk about defunding the RCMP or, or abolishing the police force in general, what we're talking about is, is, is providing the services, the social services that are needed for Indigenous people to, to properly exist within the within the world and within the context that they've been forced to live in. Carl, do you think that, that there is a way forth past policing? I think there has to be a way past policing. I think the policing is part of a larger process that, that really leads to a cycle of involvement in the criminal justice system. I was a court worker for a few years for my community, so I, I had a front row seat to see that once you get a toehold into the criminal justice system, that it's the type of thing that, that just becomes this, this recurring involvement again and again and again. Once you're involved in the police system, once you're involved in the, in the court system, once you're involved in the prison system, I think that it just, it just is this self-propagating cycle of dysfunction 
that that is so far detached from what we want in our communities. So absolutely, I, I want to see a post RCMP world. I want to see Indigenous oversight of, of any and all policing agencies to start with. Like if, if you were saying what could be done tomorrow to make a fundamental change, I would say turn the keys over to the individual Indigenous communities. Because there's hundreds of them, there's going to be hundreds of different solutions. But the faster we look at, at turning the keys to the cop cars, as it were, over to the actual drivers in the community, the faster I think that we're going to see some some positive change right now it's it's an entity that has a culture that's completely foreign to indigenous ways of being it's always been completely foreign to indigenous ways of being and and i don't think that it's it's ever going to properly adjust in any useful way to the communities the counter argument i can imagine and i've heard it you can uh, you know read all kinds of facebook groups and uh, rural saskatchewan forums where they say that uh, they are not adequately policed. They uh, they have the rights that anybody in Canada has to protect their property. Uh, rural policing is a big problem. Uh, who's going to who's gonna look after them? And then there's other people saying, well, what about uh, all of the domestic abuse that happens? Uh, can we really allow these communities to police themselves? Is that really uh, a, a, a way forward? Let's get real here. How do you respond to, to, to that kind of perspective on this? Uh, you're racist. I mean, these are all fundamental racist views that Indigenous people are inferior and that we're not capable of maintaining the level of, of uh, civility that Canada is capable of doing. And when we talk about the level of civility that Canada is capable of doing, let's forget, let's remind ourselves of the eight to nine people that we just said who died at the hands of the police. Right. Like like that, that is fundamentally a racist point of view. That indigenous people aren't good enough. We don't. We don't have the capability. We don't have the know-how. We don't have the 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 uh, the the civility to maintain this level of structure. Well, and to that, what I fundamentally say is that since uh, Canada has become a country in 1867, we we have been maintaining our ways and our customs since time immemorial. Right. The only the only hiccup in our our civilizations is the country of Canada. Well, I, I, I can't think of a moment where it seemed more possible to affect some kind of big shift than, than right now. Do you think we'll still be talking about this six months from now, Jesse? Or is it just when these things pop up in the headline that, that these conversations will happen? We'll be talking about it the next time it pops up in the headline. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're always looking for ways to talk about it. Uh, and, you know, there's something exciting about what's going on right now, uh, as, as kind of awful as it is. Because there is a sense like anything's possible and things are on the table that were never on the table before. So uh, we're sort of doubling and tripling down on it um, and doing episode after episode, looking at things from just slightly different perspectives because it does slip away really quickly. You know, uh, we do have the attention span of a gnat and, you know, and as much as Canada land is about commenting on the media, we kind of are dragged along to whatever the media looks at next. But I, th- I don't know. This wasn't a flash in the pan. This wasn't a, you know, it was a culmination of months and years, decades. So, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yes and no. Like, I something's different. Don't you think so? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I kind of thought that with COVID, like, it seemed like uh, basic income guarantees and like all these sort of things that, that seemed like they were really pie in the sky were going were gonna to become tangible. And now that things are reopening, it's like, wait a minute, this looks a lot like what it looked like before, only the people at the bottom of the financial order have sort of paid for everything and are worse off, but everybody else is okay. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm afraid that, that with all this police action that it might be a similar thing. Like, yeah, we're talking about defunding the police, but they're like on a community level, the things that we're seeing here in Niagara Falls is there, there are a lot of pushback. The police force have some very adamant and influential defenders. And this is an institution that's not going away without, without one hell of a fight. And I think that if, if this truly became an argument that was going to affect the core of, of what policing is, I, I think that we're just at the beginning of, of the tools in the toolkit of, of the police defense machine that is really just started to get going. I mean, I agree, and I, I would extend that to the whole thing. Like, it, everybody's kind of just hoping that things are going to go back to normal uh, across the board. And if they can, then people will be relieved, and they'll forget everything they were thinking about right now. So, you know, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but for people who are, like, trying to push, it seems like, you you know, the only 
course of action is don't let it get back to normal. Uh, and it, and it's not going to be normal because, like, as you say, somebody's footing the bill for all this stuff, you know? Somebody's been out there uh, more exposed to the pandemic. Someone's been out there doing the work that, that can't be done over Zoom. So, you know, I guess that's the question um, is will people on the front lines, people on the ground allow things to normalize, uh, you know, and protest movements do have this kind of exhaustion point they reach. And so far, like the media got exhausted before the protesters have. Right. I mean, let me ask you that. I mean, you're you're indigenous journalists and, you know, you've made it your business to talk about this stuff every week. What do you think is the best way to seize this moment? It is tough because I do think that we we run into a bit of an echo chamber where where people are are sort of reinforcing the ideas that that we have. I I agree with your sort of original take on this that it feels different this time. It feels like we're finally asking these questions. I think that sooner or later police are so expensive and we may even already be at that point that people who don't ideologically believe that the just thing to do is to relook at police that people are going to go well wait a minute you know somewhere between two to to four of every ten dollars that i pay in taxes is going to pay for my police force depending on which community you live in and is that is that really how that money needs to be spent so it could be the the time for a shift these police reports that they've released in our community like like i'm watching the comment section and it it has struck a nerve and it has awakened a whole new generation of people that, that are weighing out on issues that, that haven't weighed in before. So I, I'm glad that I'm in a position where I get to comment on this publicly because, because there is a change. And from a storytelling standpoint, it's, it's an exciting change to watch. I think there's going to be neat and new stories that are going to unfold as a result of this. You know, when we look at the immediacy with which white protesters who are taking to the streets on behalf of fighting anti-black racism, inspired by, in large part, what happened in America, not what happened here, and we compare and contrast these scenarios, I mean, there's a lot that's different. But there's a difference in the way that different communities have resisted. And, uh, you know, one big difference, of course, I think, is the difference between things happening in an urban center and a rural center. And whereas when protests happen and movements happen in a part of the country that everything about Canada has kind of uh, organized to help us ignore and forget... The mainstream response is to authorities, oh, go shut it down. Don't give an inch. Go shut it down. And there's a difference as well in a big protest that can that can get rowdy uh, in, the, in a downtown urban core and a way that is sort of culturally consistent with, with uh, some indigenous communities where we see healing walks. I feel like one is more politically urgent to affecting change, that when you have an air of mournfulness and solemnity, Canada says, oh, this is an interesting cultural expression, and that's a one-day news story. But when there are angry people on the streets a mile or two away from you, people say, we've got to do something about this. How do you, uh, how do you take what I'm saying, I guess, is what I'm asking. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to ask it in, 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 in a respectful way because I'm not in a position to tell people how to resist or protest. Uh, but I, I am somebody who kind of looks at how it all plays out and sees the, the effectiveness of different, of different methodologies. What do you think? Um, Carl, let's start with you. Well, that's something I watched during Idle No More. And I mean, that was our big community awakening here where we we were initially blocking highways and I mean, blocking rail lines and, and affecting change in that way. And there there was a shift in the community that, that we had to do this in such a way so that if our kids were watching us, that they would see that we were working on their behalves with honor. So it is it is always this great challenge as community members that, that want to see positive change that that do we do we block things? Do we shut things down? Does that get more attention? I mean, look, look at what happened in Tyandinega, right there. The people in Wet'suwet'en have been quietly protesting for a decade and they, they've been right. Like the Delgamu decision could not be more clear that they've been 100 percent right. But then Tyandinega shuts down a, a main arterial rail line in Canada and everybody takes notice. So I'm, I'm going to flip this back over to the Canadian public. I mean, they're, they're sort of forcing our hand that the things that catch the headlines are Oka and Ipperwash and Gunnestodon and Tyandinega and all these sorts of things. That's, that's what's really, really tough 
is we as indigenous people are putting into this position where it's like, yeah, we we have educated people now. We have this robust friendship center movement. We have court workers in the courts. We have indigenous police. We have all these people that are that are fighting for positive change using, you know, indigenous senators like like Senator Dick. And yet still on a wholesale level, the fundamental relationship hasn't shifted anywhere. So are, are we going to reach a boiling point and a breaking point? I hope it doesn't come to that. But when when you start to run out of options, that's when you start to get desperate. And if things don't change soon, then the coming generations, I, I can't speak for what direction they might have to go in. When you talk about the possibility of the protest movement getting more drastic, is that going to have to happen to keep people's attention right here? I, from my perspective, I think that it has to be that way. We have to look to extreme measures. I think we need to touch on the base of systemic racism, right? Like, it, it's fantastic that Justin Trudeau takes a knee, and it's fantastic that he verifies that it exists, and it's fantastic that the RCMP commissioner uh, changes their point of view later on. But unless they truly identify that systemic racism exists, and unless they truly believe it, if they do not believe it, then it doesn't matter. The words that come out of their mouth are irrelevant. Only they know if they believe that Canada has a systemic racism issue. And unless they address that, we are not going to be any better off. The people who have been killed by the hands of the police, are these aren't new, right? This is this may be new to Canadian society. This may be new to the mainstream media. But fundamentally, this, these are things that we've had to deal with since, since Confederation. We've had these reports, we've had these commissions, we've had these inquiries that Canadians and the governments have put millions upon millions of dollars into, and we haven't seen any real progress. The recent report on Indigenous people incarceration has has clearly indicated that Indigenous people are incarcerated at a higher rate than non-Indigenous people. We make up 3 to 4% of the population, but yet we make up 30 plus percent of incarcerated individuals. So, I mean, I don't understand what else we can do. I think that we're going to have a, a reawakening, if you will. And and again, I'm a young man. Um, I have young children and my young children, are they're going to stand on my shoulders and they're going to do the work that Carl and I weren't able to get done. Uh, how that looks, I don't know. If, if, it, if it's, again, protesting, if it's demonstration, sure. If, it, if it's taking over the system by participation and, and democracy, sure. I don't know, but I know that... Uh, we're going to be better off once our younger generation comes in. They're going to stand on our shoulders. They're going to do the work that we were unable to do. That is your Canada land. Come on, give us five bucks a month. We'll give you an ad-free version of it, plus other stuff. Click on the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com, where you can listen to and subscribe to Oppo, which has been terrific. You should check that show out. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil 
A Campside Media Original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.